This is the Activist Investing Today podcast with your host, Ron Oral at The Deal. And I'm very excited to be here today with Shane Goodwin, Associate Dean and Professor in the Department of Finance at the Cox School of Business at Southern Methodist University. Professor Goodwin is the Magic Director of the Applied Corporate Governance Institute at the Center for a Global Enterprise, and he's authored a number of publications on subjects that we are fascinated about here at the Activist Investor Day podcast, including the efficacy of activist directors and about hedge fund activists that seek board seats, generate long-term value. Thank you, Professor Goodwin, for taking the time. No, I really appreciate it, Ron. Thank you for having me back. Okay, cool. So to start, I thought it would be interesting to talk about a course that you created for MBAs on corporate accountability. And I was wondering if you could talk about it in the context of the business roundtable statement in 2019 of a corporation's purpose. This is this uh, very kind of controversial, but highly covered statement, which puts employees, customers, suppliers, communities above generating long-term value for shareholders. And I suspect there are a lot of trade-offs between various stakeholders. And so anyways, tell us about the course and, and uh, about you know, how this BRT statement helped create it. Sure. No, absolutely. In fact, it was certainly, I think, the, uh, the catalyst or the genesis for some degree for this. Uh, you know, as you and I discussed, uh, right when the, uh, the, the uh, BRT statement came out in August of 19, you know, obviously it was met with a lot of great reception and fanfare for obviously those 281 CEOs that were certainly willing to be signatories for it. But as you know, there were definitely some skeptics that obviously looked at this as a little bit of a virtue signaling and ultimately wanted to reserve their uh, judgment, if you will, to see if the actions would actually support the rhetoric. And obviously, we've seen a lot since then. And quite frankly, if you recall, it was only weeks later that Amazon announced, obviously, after they have acquired Whole Foods, that they were cutting the benefits for their part-time employees two or three weeks later, right after they made that announcement that they were signing, obviously, part of the BRT and took a victory lap and talked about the you know wonderful benefits of investing employees. Only two weeks later, they cut the benefits in their subsidiary of Whole Foods. So that's probably the first of uh, a number of examples that people could probably throw out about where uh, certain aspects of this uh, BRT statement was you could criticize on. Correct. And so that really kind of led me, once I saw that and a number of things, it really kind of spurred a number of different things for me. Obviously, 2020 was the celebration, the 50th anniversary from the New York Times publication from Milton Friedman's essay, The Social Responsibility of Business is to Increase Profits. I've obviously always marveled at that because I think many people always just read the title and then draw an opinion. They've really never took time to actually read it. And it's not even that long of a read, but most people probably haven't taken the time to read it. But even if they do, certainly obviously can be controversial, but what really comes down to what is the role and purpose of a corporation in our society. And so I wanted to design and help build skills for our students, our, really our future business leaders, about what is the pur- purpose of a corporation in society. And not really to address these black and white issues, really the perfunctory issues that are happening all the time, but it's really to talk about the managing in the gray areas. And that's where it gets a lot more complicated. It's certainly very easy to talk about some of these topics in a very normative way or in a way of, uh, without getting into what happens in reality, some of the trade-offs that are originally made. So I really wanted to make sure we focused on that. And I wanted to put the students in the shoes of decision makers who actually face these competing responsibilities, these ambiguous standards, and all these uncertainties and really in in, uh, intense time pressures. And so we kind of really put together a tripartite of economics, law, and ethics. Mm -hmm. And it was really around putting together a 
around the constituencies that you identified, and obviously the BRT statement did as well, which is around investors, customers, employees, suppliers, and then the broader public. And really kind of put together and explore all these difficult concepts under the realm of fiduciary duty, the conflict of interest, what a product liability, fairness, externalities, and all of these aspects. And the reality was, as an educator, what I was trying to do, and I obviously wanted to do, was really inspire or really help our aspiring business leaders to really know what their role and responsibilities are, how to incorporate these responsibilities into decision-making, and how to build an organization that can make good on these promises that they make and these responsibilities, and ultimately develop a personal strength, really test them, if you will, and put them in real-life situations today for when they are going to get tested in the future and the time to come. And this is really a case-based class. We go through every week a number of different cases from dealing with either Apple or Juul and smokeless tobacco, dealing with the NFL and what's happened either with the head injuries and obviously what they disclosed and didn't disclose to their, quote, employees or really for their players, and then how they're handling social issues dealing with the Facebook and privacy rights, dealing with Apple around privacy rights as well, how they're actually behaving here in the United States, how they behave in other countries, how how they behave in other jurisdictions, i.e. in China. Do they actually perform and and view the laws the same way or have a consistency or do they actually function very differently? And it was really to get students again to think about, it's a lot more complex than just a, a very simple statement on a page. And when you put people in those shoes, realizing that times, There are trade-offs that have to be made between some of these constituents and, quite frankly, even some of the constituents within those different investor groups as well and really get people to think about that. So it's been a wonderful class. We just finished our inaugural class this fall, and I'm happy to say that I just saw that it actually has already doubled in participation for the spring. Wow, that's uh, that's impressive. So, yeah, they're definitely interesting to see how the stakeholder concept is having all this pretty big impact. Okay, so I wanted to talk about another initiative you have which is about shareholder engagement and predictive and analytic stewardship vulnerability score you helped create. So tell me about this, how this was formed. My understanding is basically some sort of predictive analytic system to identify whether a company could soon be targeted by an activist. Is that in a nutshell what it's about? It is. You know, it's funny. I wouldn't call it a new initiative. This probably goes back, uh, well, very many, many years, even during my days prior to uh, being involved in academia. As you know, Ron, I spent over 20 years in practice, investment banking, um, and primarily working the M&A groups at uh, Goldman Sachs and Citigroup. And as I grew up in there, a lot of my clients, probably in the early 2000s, were starting to get attacked a lot more by what we would certainly know now as kind of hedge fund activists. This was really kind of the starting of this. Now, activism, as we know, is certainly not new, but the growth and the development for the hedge fund activists really were starting to really grow considerably in the early 2000s. That really intrigued me a lot. I enjoyed being a part of that discussion and working with our clients obviously defending those clients, our corporate clients, against those activist situations. Ultimately, that really led me into, believe it or not, completing a PhD on this topic. Wow. And ultimately, even advancing and extending that research even further after I completed my dissertation, doing a postdoctoral fellowship at Harvard, extending this research even further. And then while I was at Columbia Business School, we partnered with the Center for Global Enterprise, which is led by Sam Palmasano, who's a former chairman and CEO of IBM. Mm-hmm. And he's been partnered with uh, Michael Bloomberg and some others to create a what I would call much more of a do tank, not a think tank. And the, the idea was to basically bring real world practices 
and applied practices to management today. And one of those was around corporate governance and really how the activist landscape has really changed and impacting a lot of these companies. And, and, and Sam's uh, no stranger to that today. Obviously, he's on the Exxon board, as everyone probably knows. And you can be faced with activism at any particular time. Just to, since you, you brought it up, that's the situation where this upstart activist, Engine Number One, has launched a campaign at, at Exxon, and he's one of the board members there and a couple other activist-type funds that are kind of agitating there as well. But anyways, go on, go on. No, absolutely. And so, that the, 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 again, that's very interesting because I would say several years ago, we would have never taken seriously an activist focus, I, what people would say around what perhaps non-economic issues, the same way of maybe distributing, you know, cash to shareholders via dividend or, or you know, M&A transactions were very common, right? Forcing a sale of a company. A lot of times they are economic, there's no doubt about it, but they create a lot of wedge issues and they, and they obviously can be very complicated and, and can create the wedge issues in the boardroom as well. So we, were, we worked together, we partnered together for two years, and the idea was to uh, really develop predictive analytics to really identify uh, vulnerabilities for companies. What we were really trying to do in our partnership was to collaborate on really groundbreaking research to provide analytical rigor and really objectivity to this ongoing debate. Because at this particular point, you know, we were still lacking in a lot of really good analytical rigor. It was pretty anecdotal. We were kind of discussing situations from case to case to case. We weren't really steeped in a lot of analytical rigor around this. And we wanted to be very objective. And so we developed our own proprietary database and our predictive analytics to, to identify these vulnerabilities of what we would call a potential shareholder engagement. We built our own stewardship vulnerability score to help predict shareholder vulnerability or shareholder activism really 18 to 24 months in advance of an engagement. And this came about by being informed by boards and CEOs. We went out to them and we spoke with them and they said, they don't want to find out when there's a 13D file that there's a, a situation and they don't want to find out and get a call one day that they're being targeted by someone and they've let, missed some clear time. What we do know of working with a lot of the activists is they're obviously having an investment theme and they have their own dashboards and as they're reviewing companies and targeting companies and they could be targeting specific industries with, and then obviously targeting companies within those industries. And what we wanted to do is kind of mimic or create a lot of the, the same kind of metrics that they were looking at to help predict what a company could actually use as, as they were moving into what we would call the zone of vulnerability so that it didn't happen overnight. And then ultimately, we were going to take all that analytical research and obviously publish it, which we did, but really then go out and talk with very prominent CEOs, directors, the institutional investors to help get information from them to publish what we call clear day and then engagement principles. Clear day meaning, you know, before any attack occurs, what are some good um, engagement principles or, or I'm sorry, some, ga- some clear day principles um, that you can do to prepare yourself in advance of any kind of um, an attack or certainly an engagement by an activist. And what are the engagement principles? Once you are subject to a uh, proxy fight or, or certainly an approach by an activist, what are some of the things you can do based on best practices by those CEOs that have gone through it from start to finish? Uh, what we did was basically uh, create our own, as I said, our predictive uh, analytics based on going back to 1994 and really scraping all the data from S&P, pulling down all the 13D filings, augmenting that with public news stories, and really building out our own engaged investors 
we had over 30,000 companies. We had 50,000 different engagements mm-hmm. and about 3,000 variables that we were looking at when we finally built our data. So that's billions of data points that then we further went down and said, well, what we do know is that the engagement matrix is very different. What we do know is that governance, there's governance MA. Mm-hmm. Uh, we just talked about that as far as ESG and sustainability. That's typically a means to an end. It's not the end itself. And that can be, back then it was removing structural defenses, a classified board or a pill, mm-hmm. or getting a majority or proxy access. So those are governance-related uh, topics that activists can certainly use. There's MA, obviously, as far as a, a, a targeting strategy and an objective. And that's an easy strategy for a company. That happened at Whole Foods, for instance, with John. They basically came in and ultimately demanded for some action and ultimately it was sold to Amazon. And that's a very simple one. And now today, obviously, not just pushing sales, but obviously it's an influencing a merger. So there's bump arbitrage or blocking deals. Then there's balance sheet, um, which is basically trying to get the companies to run a little bit more efficiently, i.e. return capital to shareholders via a share buyback or a special dividend. Those can take a little bit more time. Obviously, we saw that with Apple and Carl Icahn, and those can just be a little bit more uh, challenging for an activist. They're not as easy as forcing a sale of a company as far as a quick return. Okay, so let's uh, break down some of the other categories of your analytics metric. So you talk about there's financial metrics, there's ownership analytics, governance, you talked a little bit, and industry M&A landscape, you talked about a little bit. And then, of course, compensation, executive compensation, and ESG, which we also chat about. So in terms of financial metrics and ownership analytics, I'm wondering if a company is underperforming its peers, I think that's an important financial metric, but it's controlled, then you bring in the ownership analytics. If it, uh, I suspect that that, you know, if it's controlled by an insider founder, you know, would you say that that company is, is safe from an activist? If the, let's say Mark Zuckerberg is the, you know, obvious example, controls 60% of the vote at Facebook, far fewer shares, that kind of situation there, if it's a dual class share company, is it, you know, much more safe from an activist, even if it's underperforming its peers? Yeah, no, that's a, it's a great question. So ownership definitely matters. And, and uh, we've talked about this in the past, and particularly when we talk about the big three and what their role could be or and or how much retail is part of the ownership as well. So retail- big three being the big three index funds, Vanguard, State Street, BlackRock. Yes, and, and it really does matter about their ownership as well. Now, they, they split votes at times between the P&G proxy fight with Tryon, and obviously they didn't support Nelson Peltz and Tryon in the DuPont, but they obviously split in the other. So it can change, and that definitely has changed. One of the things I think is very clear that we also looked at when we created our uh, vulnerability, we, we created a number of different models. The first model, just to make sure, I, uh, the reason why I'm just going to answer your question a little bit longer is there's an engagement vulnerability index. Therefore, will somebody, is it likely to get a company be targeted versus all go all the way down to a proxy fight? Basically, that's a con- we created a conditional severity index because there are times when a company may be targeted and we can call it saber rattling. We can call it basically to, to, to obviously try to agitate, but maybe there was no clear intent to go all the way to a proxy fight. Everyone knows it's very costly to do a proxy fight. You are correct, though. One of the biggest determinants as far as most significance is clearly performance and their performance based on a total shareholder return or a TSR relative to peers is obviously highly predictive whether they're underperforming their, their peers. But again, what you've mentioned about whether they have an ownership profile, that can obviously impact the likelihood of success. Therefore, you know, one would say, why would an activist want to get involved if the likelihood is they can get if they get carried to a proxy fight and they can't win? What was really the point of the engagement? Now, we've seen a couple of times where that does happen. They right. don't use 
after the proxy fight, it happened even at Dillard's, and Dillard basically had the ability to control the board in uh, Barrington. And this happened a while ago. Now I remember that one. <laughs> yeah, so Barrington did, decided to take on that. We yeah, we, the other one that I was thinking about is uh, Viacom. There were some uh, activists where uh, Sumner Redstone controlled the company. They still kind of wrote these big presentations. I guess it's an embarrassment strategy. It is. It is. And, uh, and again, get directors elected. You know, you can't win the ultimate fight. The question is, what what is your real objective, right? If your objective, as you just said, Ron, is to perhaps get some publicity, perhaps save a rattle, perhaps maybe you're, you're being virtuous or something along those lines, uh, then you can certainly target it. There's not, there, again, targeting is very different than obviously the, you know, the likelihood of getting it to success. You know, we, we actually found that once you got down to the conditional probability of an activist wanting to go all the way to a proxy fight, you only saw the most well-disciplined hedge funds at that point do that. You, you see a lot of saber rattling from others, but the ability to go all the way and take it to a proxy fight and willing to incur that on your own nickel does require that discipline from those that know that they can win the fight. Mm-hmm. Okay. So uh, one of the other categories, and you talked about this a bit already, is governance. And I guess if you could kind of maybe go over a little bit about the characteristics, what you think is a problematic board? And I'm thinking over-tenured, over-boarded, conflicting board roles. I, I feel like there's a lot of areas here that the activists could use. And, and I agree with your point that it's a you know means to an end, the end being the strategic pressure that they're trying to put on the company. But I also wanted to, when you talk about it, if you could uh, kind of, I want to wrap it to our, the governance conversation a bit about some recent developments. Earlier this month, NASDAQ filed a proposal with the Securities and Exchange Commission seeking to adopt listing rules requiring most of the companies listed on NASDAQ's various exchanges to install at least two diverse director candidates over time or explain why they have not. So A, what are some of the characteristics of a problematic board that could give them a worse score? And then I'm wondering if uh, how this, you know, it seems like there's a big effort to increase board diversity and increase uh, demographic diversity, gender and demographic diversity on boards. Yeah, no, great point. So when we were putting all this together, obviously, as you know, extremely well, that board composition has certainly changed a lot over the last, call it 20 years. I mean, it's continually evolving now. So when we started looking at this and pulling data, even from the 90s, you know, tenure, uh, diversity, obviously, <laughs> was was uh, was obviously a big factor then. But uh, and even independence, we didn't have enough independence even probably back then. We have less of those issues today. Tenure is still an issue, quite frankly. You'll see a lot, you know, and uh, when you look at overboarding, you'll still have some of those issues. You see that a lot less frequently. And I think that's because of uh, ISS and obviously maybe Glass-Lewis to an extent have obviously put some parameters around there that they definitely will, will withhold votes and certainly raise that as a, uh, a red flag for a lot of companies. When we look at the compensation, that's obviously a very important aspect as well. When you look mm-hmm. at particularly CEO compensation, certainly relative to performance. And again, as you articulated very well, and is, is, is th- these are means to an end. You're not going to get a very credible uh, activist, at least what we call an economically, what we called in our studies, economically motivated activist. So these are the well-known hedge fund activists, right? These are economic animals at the end of the day. They're, they're, they're basically value investors, deep value investors, looking ultimately to make a good return. They're not going to go out of the way on a one-off basis just to attack a company to get them to fall in line with their 
you know, better reporting for maybe compensation. Now, what that can be is, like we talked about, is a means to an end because it does create tension in the boardroom. It, it creates a wedge issue within the boardroom. But ultimately, what you will find is there, those companies if, that they're targeting will typically be underperforming and perhaps there's an opportunity to, to force it into a sale. So those are very key, important metrics. Uh, that do, that definitely create a lot of wedge issues, and particularly in the boardroom, is because you're trying to divide management, typically, and the board to create that kind of tension that that can work in the activist favor. Now, going to your point about diversity, like I said, when we were looking at this and we we're pulling up uh, information from 20 years ago or even longer, yeah, there was definitely a, a lack of diversity, uh, obviously from gender to race and others. Today, obviously, the Nasdaq proposal, which again correlates you know, not too far, if you will, from probably where Alas Lewis and ISS certainly have some standards uh, and I've reinforced those standards uh, already for moving into this year. And same with the California proposals. This all started even with the Women on Boards Initiative of 2020, where we're going to have 20% of uh, female directors on boards. We are actually involved in that ourselves. When I say we, we through SMU, we actually through our sponsor, a couple of initiatives through that. Um, and I, I know that uh, we're all very happy to report that through 2020 that we definitely made a lot of progress and exceeded the 20% threshold. But, you know, as, as they said, that's just the start of the work. Now this has obviously evolved into diversity, not just around gender, but now also into uh, race, ethnicity, and also into basically self-identification in the LTGBQ community. And I think these are going to be things given that not only as NASDAQ put this forward, but you also see that support from not only institutional shareholders commenting on it, and you also find that uh, ISS and Glass-Lewis, I, you know, I think it's going to be very hard pressed for companies to, um, you don't have to do it, as you know, That's what. It, but if you don't do it, you need to disclose and state why. And I guess you just have to wait and see if for some reason, those that are not maybe in compliance of having the diversity makeup, but they're in compliance with disclosing why they could not meet the standard, I guess we'll have to see if that if uh, the, the investors would actually punish them for that. And that'll be the very interesting aspect for it. I do know that, you know, ISS and, and Glass-Lewis have said that they're going to make a recommendation to withhold votes if they're not satisfied. Obviously, the, we'll have to see if the institutional shareholders actually support that. I'm curious if you could put maybe in the context of uh, the activist investor world. Uh, I feel like all this pressure from institutional investors from NASDAQ, from the California rules and the proxy advisors could, you know, could have an impact on, on activism. And I thought there was an interesting example of Crown Castle where Elliott management has been agitating. The company brought in not one, not two, but three African-American well-qualified directors. And they had a big picture they put up of the the directors. And uh, anyways, I'm just wondering, do you think this will drive a lot of the the activists to increase the, the demographic and gender diversity of their director candidates? I feel like in some cases they may have to, right? If they want to target a NASDAQ listed company that itself is under pressure from NASDAQ to you know, increase the diversity of their boards. I don't know. What do you think? No, no, it, it's actually very critical. In fact, I, I won't mention their name, but I spoke with a very uh, well, one of the largest private equity firms. Certainly everyone knows who they are, but they focus on those issues too, as they're basically thinking about bringing their companies back to the public market and thinking about the board composition for those companies. And quite frankly, what does that management team look like from a diversity perspective as well? They know those are very important issues to them because they know that that uh, society has certainly changed a lot and certainly have evolved to the point where it's not going to be tolerated to basically have the same kind of makeup of maybe what people perceived what it was 
30, 40 years ago. And so I think if you're going to have good practice, you're going to be thinking about those things well in advance, even if you are private before you go public. Well, first of all, if, if this definitely passes through uh, the SEC, which I don't see why it may not, but if you have your listing, uh, uh, the NASDAQ basically telling you, you can't be listed here unless you comply with these, basically either co- comply, basically have diversity or basically report and tell us why you don't. I think you're going to find a lot of people wanting to obviously abide by that. Now, how does that impact activism? I think that's going to be that, again, creates the wedge issue for the activists to come in. Because, again, I don't know if there's a real true economic means to the end. You're going to certainly have activism. It depends. Again, it goes back to how we want to classify activism. We looked at it and broken down by this economically motivated as a separate group from what we call these governance-focused activists. There, as you know, there are a lot of people out there every single day, a lot of funds, individuals, agitating companies, putting forth precatory proposals to do a lot of different things. You know, they're, they're, very, they're doing it sometimes from a virtuous standpoint, and that those things can still occur. Whether you're going to have the support from a very well-known activist um, like an Elliot or maybe in a Carl Icahn or Ackman or someone else, I, unless something changes, I think you're going to have to see that there's going to be some real economic upside as to why they would want to support a campaign. Yeah, no, yeah, and that, that's an interesting point because you know I, I have a broad umbrella for what activism is, and the, the precatory shoulder proposals are a big part of it. And I suspect we'll see more of those on uh, you know trying to increase the gender and demographic diversity of boards, particularly with the Biden-led SEC and uh, you know Biden's bringing in it with climate SARS. So I totally agree that this Nasdaq proposals is very likely to be approved. I suspect it may not have even been proposed if it hadn't been for an incoming Biden administration. But I was thinking more of like the activists when they nominate their director candidates. They'll probably need to have more diversity on them, I suspect. So, okay. Okay. So talk to us a little bit more about your stewardship vulnerability score. There's a few categories you just touched on a bit. I guess, you know, would you say that a consolidating industry, I I think, you know, for example, semiconductors, I don't know why that Mm -hmm. comes to mind, but that's one where that could increase your vulnerability. You know, there's certain sectors that activists have always targeted for these M&A deals. And um, I don't know, if if you're in a consolidating industry and uh, the activists can point to similar deals at high multiples, and I, you know, I feel like sometimes they even go to potential bidders and say, who do you want to buy? They say, we want to buy this company and the activist targets that company. I don't know. Talk a little about how that factors into your vulnerability score. Yeah. So ultimately, when we're, we're looking at individual companies, we're always measuring them against their actual peers, whether they're in their what we call kind of two, three, four, even digit zip code. But one of the things I would say is when we look at the industry as a whole first, we are actually trying to make a determination around the industry vulnerability, whether it is, as you just said, going under some consolidation. There's a lot of M&A activity into it. So we go back and look at the number of activity in those particular previous years relative to other industries. Is there something really driving what's happening in the industry, which may spur perhaps more M&A activity versus not. We look at the concentration through a number of different measures, whether it's basically a very concentrated or fragmented industry, can it withstand a lot more M&A versus not. So I think you're identifying all the key drivers that we certainly did. And we definitely saw what, uh, again, maybe from the uh, statistical side, what we call significance around those. And that definitely drove it, not only from a targeting aspect, but those components were actually very crucial all the way through on our conditionality to a proxy fight as well, whether you actually had the ability to win a proxy fight. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely. Okay, so last couple of categories, and then I'll let you go. I really appreciate you taking the time. Professor Goodwin. Okay, so CEO pay and ESG, and you touched on the CEO pay a little bit already, but I'm curious about 
ESG, this, of course, is environment, social governance. And I'm thinking of a traditional hedge fund activism. I feel like ESG is creeping more and more into that, particularly because there's a lot of these institutional investors that are demanding it. And that's the stuff that they're interested in. We're seeing a few kind of activist hedge funds formed with the ESG focus. And I'm thinking of inclusive capital uh, value, you know, the former value act, Jeff Ubin, and then impactive capital, the uh, Lauren Taylor Wolf. And then now, of course, this engine number one, this upstart, very small ESG impact investor, as they like to call themselves. Is, is, is ESG an, an increasing factor in hedge fund activism? Yeah, well, first of all, I'd say at a very macro level, I think all, many of the challenges that you know companies certainly faced in 2020, certainly management teams and their boards encountered in 2020 are going to be all front and center, certainly for 2021. Clearly, the COVID-19 pandemic and how that certainly resolves itself. I think the movement, obviously, the social and the racial injustice that we're having, the broad-based uh, socioeconomic inequality discussions that we're having, and then obviously the accelerating sense of urgency that we have around climate change and this, you know, this uh, where we're evolving to on our technological innovation and clearly what's going to happen more around our regulatory climate. I think all of those things, you know, leading into that broader category, whether we call it ESG, sustainability or resilience is definitely going to be front and center. And I think as that's taking shape and hold, I think you're going to start to see that push a lot more from shareholders, more, i.e. the institutional shareholders. Mm-hmm. So it does create an opportunity for an activist if companies aren't complying, if for some reason they feel like there's an opportunity, you know, for them to, if they're not complying with what uh, they believe the other shareholders are requesting. Again, I would go back to what type of activist is actually going to be doing the agitating. If it's to basically comply with board diversity, I don't know, again, if uh, I could see that a truly what, I, what we categorized as these truly economically motivated activists, and that's how we categorize hedge fund activists, mm-hmm. would be very different from a governance-related activist that wants to see some kind of outcome. Unless there was a material economic benefit, ultimately at the end, they would use this, as we talked about, as another governance issue, a wedge issue, uh, a means to an end. Mm-hmm. I just don't know if they're going to be taking up the cause. Uh, we've seen it in the past, right? When we, you and I have talked about this in the past about Jonna targeting Apple with their fund around about the iPads. Yeah. And, you know, again, are those going to be, you know, issues where people will take those up? I don't know if anything really came about that. I mean, we didn't see obviously a real change in behavior as far as proxified or anything else. So I just, we're, I just wait and see for me. I'm, I'm not saying I'm cynical. I would say I might be the skeptic. I want to see the actions really meet that rhetoric if they think they're going to make some of those bigger ESG changes absent a real material financial change or implications for them. Okay. All right. Well, it'll be interesting to see what happens as, uh, you know, the institutional investors are pressing on the ESG. I know it's kind of a loaded term, ESG, but, and will the activist hedge funds shift their strategies, you know, even though they have obviously an economic, you know, and some, you know, a lot of people would argue as short-term or shorter termed economic uh, goals that they want at their targeted companies. Will they have more of this ESG uh, factors in their campaigns in the months and years to come? So, and Anyways, I'll leave it at that. Uh, I appreciate you taking the time. Uh, You've been listening to the Activist Investing Today podcast with Ron Oral, and we've been talking to Shane Goodwin, Associate Dean and Professor in the Department of Finance at the Cox School of Business at Southern Methodist University. Thank you, Professor Goodwin, for taking the time. Always a pleasure, Ron. 